Jesus began his ministry with an invitation and then a forecast. By that I mean he invited his followers to come and then forecasted what would happen next. In Matthew 4.19, he invited the first disciples from, of course, a pack of fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. That was the invitation, follow him. And I will make you to become fishers of men. And so not only has God called us to himself with a sense of, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus for me. God has called us to join him in his reach for the world. It's extraordinary. And when you think of what he, he could use us, yeah, that's, that's the deal. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. The great question for any healthy church to continue to ask ourselves all the time is, are we reaching for others? Because reaching for others and fishing for men is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. Said bluntly, are we fishing for men and women, boys and girls, or are we not? And if this is not top of mind for us, as it was for Jesus and the early followers of Christ, why not? Isn't it true that great churches follow Jesus? Oh, yeah, Eric, great churches follow Jesus. Isn't it right to ask, is Calvary Baptist Church off fishing? Because if we are, then we are approximating what Jesus anticipated when he said, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. COVID has affected everything about ministry, actually. And this morning, it's very important for us to think about its effect upon outreach. Because COVID has brought everybody to batten the hatches down and be socially distanced in the middle of a movement started by Jesus Christ in the first century that is an infiltrate, winsomely engage, and share Christ with others movement, all the while we are uh, entombed or have been encouraged to entomb ourselves in our homes and be distant from each other. So this morning, the charge is the necessity of personal engagement. Come to Acts chapter 8 and let's think of that together. I want to go two different directions first. I want to talk about the two habits that are to shape the church. They're simple. You know them. One of them we talked about last week, which has become a real flashpoint in COVID. Two habits that shape the church. And secondly, I want to identify three facets upon which the future rests. I don't know about you. I want a wonderful future for Calvary Baptist Church. And our future can be predicted based upon how we are ordering our lives here today. And specifically, lest you go off to the land of Nod through this time that I'm seeking to preach the word of God to you, whether or not we are attractively engaging the surroundings that God has placed us in. That's our plan of attack this morning. First, the church celebrates the life of Christ with two disciplines. The most simple explanation of what the church ought to be and what the church ought to do is simply this. One, 
we gather. That's what this is about this morning. Two, we scatter. That's the burden of the message this morning. What is happening when we scatter? But let's review it. First, we gather together to approach the living God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is really the message last week. No sense of re-preaching it. I will read these verses from Hebrews chapter 10 that you are familiar with. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Last week, we noted the challenge of gathering in the middle of COVID, gathering together in an age when we are asked to distance, in an age when there are fears for our health and fears about coming together, being proximate to others. But one of the central disciplines of the church, and there's only two, is to gather. And don't you with me love to gather with God's people? But secondly, and that brings us to Acts chapter 8, It's the second discipline, that is, we scatter. We scatter apart to engage the world with the words and the works of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I believe it was read this morning. The disciples came to Jesus after his appearances over 40 days, and they said to him, hey, Jesus, let's have a prophecy conference, and let's set up the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Put your prophecy notebooks away, but here's what you need to do. Get up to the upper room, and after the Spirit of God has come upon you, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, in the uttermost part of the world. The disciples wanted to get distracted and talk about eschatology, the doctrine of future things. I love our hope. Christ loves us to focus on our duty in this moment, which is to represent him and engage others. Jesus lays down the template in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The gospel would start in Jerusalem with the birth of the church. That's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Not a bad day. 3,000 joined the first day. That's a pretty good start. Then it would go to Judea, the surrounding area of Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost singular part of the world. It was going to the ends of the earth. Now in Acts chapter 8, which are the verses before us, and I'm going to read in just a moment, the pressure is on. The church has been born. The Jewish leaders get upset. It's a great people movement, primarily Jewish, in Jerusalem. They begin to push back, thinking, how can we... Stop this. How can we curtail this? I know what we'll do. We'll put pressure on the church. So they arrested Peter. That didn't work. The angel let him out of jail in Acts 4. Uh, Then they laid hold of Stephen, brought false accusations, sentenced him to death. And before he died, he stood before them. And he said, let me tell you about our history. He's standing before Jewish people. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, came to his brothers and said, I will save you someday. And they they rejected him and sold him off into slavery. But there came a day when they didn't have anything to eat and found themselves bowing before Joseph. And then 
the second time they recognized the Savior that God had provided. Then he talked about Moses, who went down among his people, shackled in the slavery of Egypt, and he saw a Jewish person not being treated well, and he took up his honor, and he slew the Egyptian, taking advantage of him. Came back the next day, and they said, get out of here, Moses. We know who you are. You're that guy that killed that dude yesterday. We saw it. We don't want you to be our leader. So there was another 40 years in slavery until when Joseph showed up the next time, it was like, oh, yeah, we'll take it now. And then Stephen got to the kicker. God has sent Jesus. He sent him to Bethlehem. He sent him to the cross. He raised him from the dead. You rejected him, but he's coming a second time, and you need to repent. You killed the Son of God. Well, that was all they could take, and that was greeted with their rocks, which killed Stephen. Now, it pleased the Jewish leaders. They thought they were going to stamp out the movement. By the way, the guy holding numbers for the coats in the coat room was a man named Saul of Tarshish, who thought, man, this persecuting the church, this is good stuff. I'm going to do more of it. And he took off in a torrid errand from the devil to get all kind of pressure. Uh, some were killed. Some were imprisoned. Going house to house. Sounded like the Taliban in Afghanistan. And then we come to Acts chapter 8. Let me read it to you. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's martyrdom. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many were paralyzed or lame, were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Hear the word of the Lord. Now we gather together to approach the living God through Jesus Christ, but we scatter apart to engage the words and works of Jesus. This term scattered is the term used for spreading seed, sowing seed. It's, it's the verb used in Jesus' story about the parable of the sower. He scattered them. What God did with the church is he scattered the church. I remember I had a really bad place in my backyard, and I thought, you know, I'm going I'm to plant some grass seed. So I treated the ground, got it all up, and I've never planted a, a big plot of grass seed. So I consulted this guy, and he just knows everything. I said, Drake, what do you do? Oh, he said, I got the thing for you. I said, what is it? He says, a broadcast spreader. I said, what's, what's a broadcast spreader? Oh, man, I'll show you. And he handed me what looked like, at first, a burlap bag. And I thought, what good is this burlap bag going to do to help me? But then I realized, no, wait a minute, there's something at the bottom. And I looked, and there was this box at the bottom that had a handle on it. And, and then he said, just throw the seed in there and take the top, put it over, and just, man, it'll, it'll do the job. So I had this big old 100-pound bag of seed, and I thought, you know, I don't know how much proportion you're supposed to put, and I don't know how this thing's going to work. So I jammed my bag with as much seed as I could get, zipped it up, took off out there, and I started, man, it 
it was throwing that seed everywhere. Everywhere I went, it broadcast the seed. In fact, it ate that bag, and I was about half done. I thought, man, I better be a little more judicious here, slow down this rotation, because it's just broadcasting seed everywhere. This is what God did with persecution. He used what seemed evil to them to have the church fulfill what Jesus anticipated when he said, the gospel's going to take root in Jerusalem. Then it's going to go to Judea. Then it's going to go to Samaria. Then it's going to go to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, how did it get there? You know how it got there? The common, everyday members of the church took it there. Oh, you say, no, 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 Eric, come on, get the story right. It's the clergy. They were the tip of the sphere. All the big dogs, they got it. No, did you know what happens to the big dogs here, by the way? They do not abandon ship. The worst place to be is in Jerusalem. The apostles stay in Jerusalem because they were going to set an example for the church. Whatever goes down, we're not running or fleeing from it. We're going to stay here with the people and go down with the ship, or is it to go up to honor the Lord, even if it brings us to martyrdom? They may have even taken courage in Stephen and his boldness to declare the word of God in the face of that pressure, but they weren't leaving Jerusalem. But you know who led? It was the common, everyday followers of Jesus. They were scattered. They were broadcast. God put them in the old broadcast spreader, and they took off. But know that wherever they went, they were involved in something. Notice what it says. Look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Oh, okay, I'll tell you what. Good thing God sent the preachers out there. And we look at that word and dismiss any sense of personal responsibility. All that word means is to announce good news. That's not for the function of the preacher on Sunday morning. That's for the garden variety hours of everyday life. That with our words and with our life, we would be announcing that there's another way to live. We would be announcing that in knowing Jesus, we come to a life that we would never experience apart from knowing Jesus. And we announce this to others and invite them to him. They proclaim to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention. They were listening. Now, the book of Acts is a transitional book that has some complexities to it. The gospel begins with predominantly Jewish people in Jerusalem. But as it goes out, it was with new people groups. The gospel had never gone to the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans are the despised minority, the quote-unquote half-breed Jews who had intermingled in marriage with the Assyrians who brought all those other peoples down after, in 722 B.C., the north is carried off into captivity and gone forever. But they, there was Jewish people who had intermarried who were there. The gospel had never come there. So when it came to a new people group, it looks a lot like Pentecost again. It looks like Acts 2 repeated. It's a rerun. With a new set of people, there were authenticating miracles. In fact, the demonic world, if nobody else could understand, and many other people did understand, the demonic world begins to cry out, recognizing that Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel had come to run evil out of town. 
And then the lame, who had been beset by the brokenness of this world, were healed, giving a picture of this hope that we have that someday God's going to restore everything in the new heavens and the new earth. This Jesus is that extraordinary. And it gave a hearing to the gospel with a new group of people who came to believe in him, the Samaritans. It would be later that the apostles would come, lay their hands on them, and while there was not speaking in tongues, so there was not all of the attending circumstances of Acts, they received the Holy Spirit. And we understand that God has established now a beachhead among the Samaritan people. And it all starts with commoners. Where were the leaders? Oh, you know, there, there's a great story. I, I, I love the story, actually. Uh, Chris Combs coming to Christ. He and Kim were talking one night. They were sharing company and growing an affection for each other. And uh, Kim dutifully was exploring where he was with Jesus. The most important question in all of life. By the way, where are you with Jesus? And as God brought you here this morning, in hearing of his work in Yosette's life, in hearing the word of God to open your heart to believe in Jesus, I invite you to him. There is hope and life and forgiveness with Jesus. Apart from him, there is death and judgment and separation from God in life and eternity. Come to place your faith in Christ this morning. I urge you to be reconciled to him. Back to Chris and Kim. It got to a point in a conversation where she concludes, look, wherever this guy is, I don't think he knows the Lord. And dutifully, it's a wonderful daughter. She drove him home to her father. And what's he do? Uh, and, and I'm not being critical of him. It's, it's, it's dad probably delighting in this moment and wanting to have it done the best he can. But he, he says, all right, let's get in the car. <laughs> and they drove to Pastor Wagner's house, and Pastor Wagner uh, led him to Christ. Now, while I appreciate that story, this is not the paradigm. In the New Testament, what happens is, where are the leaders in this great gospel movement of scattering? They're in Jerusalem. They were willing to stay in the crucible. The others left, and it was the common, everyday people. You know, I, how many people live in the church? Eric, I don't have any gifts. I just, you know, I love Jesus. He's opened my heart. I'm a follower of Jesus, but... Boy, we, we need a gifted person to do stuff. You know what? The, this great movement of gospel Christianity was born along by the common everyday folks who populated the church by the grace of God. And there they went. And wherever they went, they took the gospel with them and engaged the culture where they were. Please note, it's a natural thing for wandering Christians to spread the good news. That's what happened. Common believers, not church leaders, took the message forward. This passage should come as great, a, a great inducement for encouragement, not unlike our daughter encourages her, the world's greatest new granddaughter born April 30th this year. Little Riley was born a month early. 
born a little weak and puny, and she didn't want to eat. I'm convinced in that regard that none of my genes were passed on to her. <laughs> I've never had a problem with appetite. She does. And then when she would eat, it wouldn't bring her pleasure. She was super colicky and had this reflex thing going on with her. Uh, you know, it was four months of weeping and wailing and gnashing and teeth for both mother and daughter. But along the way, and you have to be so patient and persevering in feeding her. And she not only doesn't have much of an appetite, and these two go together, she eats slow. But um, she was here with us over the weekend, and now, you know, she's getting on and taking flight. And, uh, it's a lot better. But she's still not super eager to eat. And, um, but when Abby feeds her, our daughter, she'll speak sweetly to her as a mother and kind of sing her a little song and a chant. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And given all the carnage they've been through with tears and everything else, I think there were not sweet lullabies going on at one time. You know, I think both mother and child were pulling out their hair. But it's just a sweet little song of affirmation and encouragement and inducement. And if you hang in there long enough, she'll ingest what she needs to ingest. This passage gets next to us, puts its arm around us, and says, you can do it. You can do it. And what a glory in our insignificant lives to be used by God to take his word to others. The way we live, where we are, what we say. Notice verse 6, and, and, and it always works this way. And unless it works like this, it won't work. God gave them a hearing. One of the glories of being asked to do this is, and I love Augustine's prayer from the 5th century, Lord, demand what you will, but provide what you demand. Okay, if you're going to ask us to go, will you please go with us and make it work according to your will? And he does. The text says they proclaim, they publish these tidings, and the crowds paid attention to what was being said. There were authenticating signs. God worked in the very publishing of this information. They saw the signs that he did. And the result of their work was that they accepted the message. They heard the message about Jesus. They relied on the message and accepted it and came to life spiritually, came to follow him. The result, according to verse 8, look how it ends. So there was much joy in that city. Are you covered over? with a sense that Cincinnati and northern Kentucky could not be more joyful in this hour. I'm not. But what happened in Samaria with the proclamation of this message, good news of great joy for all people still this morning. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. A Savior on our behalf taking our hell has died on the cross. A Savior has been raised from the dead. And everybody who wants may come, whosoever will may come. What happened when they embraced that message is joy broke out in Samaria as never before. Don Richardson has a theory. You may have read his book, Peace Child, many years ago, or uh, The Lord of, 
I get these titles mixed up. It's it's very near the title of, uh, it doesn't matter, he wrote another, the sequel to uh, The Peace Child. Um, he says this, the hidden message of the book of Acts is this, the people of God wouldn't leave Jerusalem till God kicked them out to leave and go do what Jesus had asked them to do. It wasn't until they were scattered with the heat of persecution that they owned the responsibility that he had given them to be a part of their mission. It's an interesting idea. At the end of the service, we have the sending. Really, it's on your marks, get set. The gathering is now over and the scattering has begun. Go! We leave, taking the message. Now, here's the deal. COVID has created a new tragedy for the church. On the one hand, this is what we talked about last week in gathering, the church who doesn't gather and has trouble with the gathering because of new habits people have taken in COVID. As I told you, we're mounting an effort to call and try to stay in touch with this wonderful network at Calvary. Um, there's probably... 400 people in both services this morning. There's 800 people that will be called who are in the network who stay with us. Isn't that something? That's interesting. So COVID has created the tragedy of the church that doesn't gather, but then it's also created the tragedy, and so has the pressure from our culture, of gathering churches who don't engage when they're scattered. Is that us? And Satan has a million distracting tools now let's think about three factors. Calvary's spiritual health, point two, and future hinges, what's the hinge? On our winsome engagement of our world. Churches who believe their future rests on scattering to share Christ are the churches with a good future. Are we one of those? Do we carry that around in our conscience? Does it show up in how we live and where we are? We must keep our eyes on three factors this morning. Fact, factor number one, church ministry used to be a clubhouse for the Christendom neighborhood to get together and stay in touch with the home team. Those days are over. Developers will develop a neighborhood, by the way, and then layer up with big HOA fees, but they'll put in a clubhouse that might have a pool and a tennis court and a basketball court, and it becomes a hub. Everybody in the neighborhood to come, a nexus around which to orbit, a place to relate. If you don't live in the neighborhood, don't go up there. That's the clubhouse. That's for people in the neighborhood. It's for them. They pay for it. So, it's what it is. Let me show you a chart. You know, I, I, th th just go with me on this. It's a little more visible with the larger screen here. First service was smaller. The church was greatly persecuted as it's born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In its persecution, it fans out, scattering the seed, broadcasting the seed of the word of God. You get to 337, and the emperor of the Roman Empire, a man named Constantine, is on his deathbed. He confesses Christ and experiences baptism by effusion, which somebody brought a pitcher in, dumped it over his head. We practice baptism by how the New Testament word is understood, by immersion. 
It means to dip or immerse. I had the privilege of uh, immersing uh, Yosette this morning. And she identified with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Even in the posture of immersion, we identify with Jesus Christ uh, by faith and symbolic act through baptism. Well, you hum along. I wouldn't die for the year 2000, but when, when I was in college, Francis Schaeffer, a Presbyterian missionary from Europe, is going around cities in America, and he's giving lectures. And he's talking about the post-Christian world. Now, he's doing this simultaneous with Jerry Falwell publishing his magazine, The Moral Majority. And, you know, how do you, where do those two lines intersect? How can we have a post-Christian world if we have the moral majority? Because there is no morality without a God to whom we are accountable and responsible who has created us and before whom we shall stand at the end of his life. That's the basis of morality. So you have then Constantine is converted. Some argue this is when the church really got off the rails. Because rather than being a visiting team, we became the home team. And Christianity got folded into the Roman governance and perception and it began, you know, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Roman. What's wrong with you? You know, and then you have, this is how Western society develops. And you have, uh, for example, the state churches uh, uh, in, in governance. And uh, people began to view uh, their birth into a particular geographic place. Well, I'm, I was born into Christendom. You know, Jesus is kind of over everything. By the way, isn't it interesting that none of us have heard the notion Judeo-Christian voiced in the public square. That now is not allowed and not spoken of at all. We've blown way by that because now we're in a post-Christian world. We've awakened to that. Um, the, the Oldsmobile ran a commercial. I've told you about it before for a moment right before they went out of business. So this is not your father's Oldsmobile, you know. It's worth it, you know. And, and uh, people over 65 always bought Oldsmobiles. And so it had people over 65 driving their Oldsmobiles real fast and doing donuts and stuff. It, that was the, the last bastion of them going out of business. But it is true. This world is not your father's Oldsmobile. In case you haven't looked recently, we've left old uh, the Cleaver neighborhood. Old Beaver. Uh, that Warden June, those days are gone. They're so far gone, many of you are saying, well, what in the world is he talking about? You have to be old to even appreciate that one. But Francis Schaeffer was saying, post-Christian world, and I was going, oh, come on. Now I look back and say, "How that dude, was, he, was, he saw it clearly. We're there. We live in a post-Christian age. Ministry is different. I'm reading a book now called Canoeing the Mountains. Uh, in fact, Richard Allen Farmer, just we were talking about it when he was here, and I thought, well, I'll get it and read it. Uh, it uses Lewis and Clark and um, the uh, expedition. You know, Jefferson was a friend of Meriwether Lewis, and he said, hey, look, get in a canoe. We just got the Louisiana Purchase. Find the Pacific Ocean, and it'll be a haymaker economically for us because we'll bring economic goods back and forth. We don't know where that goes. Just find it. Go go it. So they got in canoes thinking they were going to get out to the Pacific Ocean, ran into a problem because uh, eventually the Missouri River stops someplace, and you get to the Rocky Mountains. 
and they had been all wired to canoe to the ocean and ran into the Rocky Mountains. How do you canoe over the mountains? The world's changed. Christendom's over. Now, many argue as well, and prophetic voices, that this gives authentic gospel Christianity the best chance to thrive since all that other stuff is gone. By the way, this is wrapped up in, in uh, it's a good litmus, litmus test. How you view January 6th. What a grief to my heart to see big posters, Jesus saves, and the Christian flag uh, taken from the rally down to the capital. Uh, you know, that, that there's deep streams of civil religion in America. You know, God, mom, apple pie, Lee Greenwood and Jesus. You know, that's America. America! By the way, I love America. I'm deeply concerned for America. But I love America. And what America needs more than anything else is to get on its knees and repent of its indulgence and repent of her sin and come to place her confidence and hope for the future, not in anything related to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but in the empty tomb and that old rugged cross. That's our future. And that's who we are as God's people. Here's what Canoeing the Mountains author Todd Bolzinger said. The statistics of the Western church's steady decline are well known, but most of us have been unprepared for how accelerated and disoriented that pace has become through the rapid and demonstrable marginalization of the church in Western society. Most churches, with a few obvious exceptions, are dying. Extracurricular activities from music lessons to sports participation are considered by most parents to be more effective at forming good character in our children and getting them accepted to good colleges than the church. Spirituality has become wildly popular, but so deeply individualistic that the fastest growing religious affiliations among those under 30 are those who check the category none or check the category spiritual, but not religious. As pastors, we are trained to teach those who come on their own, to care for those who call for help, to lead those who volunteer, and to administer the resources of those who willingly give and participate. Sidebar, hallmarks of Christendom and how people engage the church. Now, we are called to minister to a passing parade of people who treat us like we are but one option in their personal salad bar of self fulfillment. He goes on to say that the churches that have the most trouble are the churches that have been the most successful in thinking about global evangelism. By the way, come if Jesus Christ tarries is coming at the end of February, we'll have our 50th 5-0 mission conference. We don't call it missions. Where's the term missionary in the New Testament? We're all missionaries. But you can say, oh, look at us, what we're doing in the world. And he says this, very often the church that struggles most with mission to its neighbors has decades of success sending missionaries overseas. Now here's the question then. Are we going to be a clubhouse or a lighthouse? The purpose of the lighthouse is in the middle of the storm to get your bearings. We are in the middle of a storm. We are unraveling socially. 
Mental health-wise, we are unraveling. All to have a presence in the community, speaking to the hope and the life that comes in knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Factor two, church ministry is now a boot camp to equip the saints to serve others, defend the gospel, and engage in a pagan world with gospel Christianity. I want you to know that our adult Bible fellowships matter. Serious discipleship better be going on in there or they're not worth having. Another factoid of Bible knowledge to drop on us is not going to help us defend the faith to a secular neighbor who wants nothing to do with us. Think of the attitudes that our workmates have toward gospel Christianity. Are we equipped and are we equipping others in our ABF class to stand in our day and offer a credible witness and answer their good questions about this broken world and how to live. Our life groups cultivating meaningful connections, they matter to be loved, to be missed, to have our burdens borne. That matters. Calvary University on Wednesday night, by the way, there's also a cell of people who just get in the library and pray from 7 to 8.15 on Wednesday night or 8.20. I invite you to be engaged in the gathering so that when we scatter, we can matter for him because apart from him, we can do nothing. That's what Jesus said. And I'm too old to be content with nothing. I want to die with a smile on my face, astonished that he did exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. I'm sure that little boy who went home having handed Jesus those barley loaves and fishes was astonished that that little sack fed the crowd because all of us feel like we have a little sack, me included. But God takes our little sacks and he makes them work for him. Think of gospel Christianity as another way to live Malcolm Muggeridge said, no view of life, as I am well aware, could be more diametrically opposed to the prevailing view today, especially as relayed in our mass communication media, dedicated as they are to the counter-proposition that we can live by bread alone, and the more, the better. He wrote that in 1974. What would he write today? Only churches joyfully serious about robust discipleship will survive what's going on in our post-Christian days. Muggeridge went on to write this. Let us not be afraid of these days. Let, let us then rejoice that we see around us at every hand the decay of the institutions and the instruments of power. Let us rejoice to see intimations of empires falling to pieces, money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplushed by the confusions and the conflicts which encompass us. For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored to no effect, when in the shivering cold the last faggot, a piece of a 
wood thrown in the fire has been thrown onto the fire and in the gathering darkness every glimmer of light has finally flickered out. It's then that Christ's hand reaches out, sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring their inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever, so finding in everything only deception and nothingness. The soul is constrained to have recourse to God himself and to rest content in him. What if I told you he wrote that almost 50 years ago? What would he write today? Finally, COVID's habit make all the more vital our personal connection with others who do not yet follow Jesus Christ. One of the glories of Calvary is where you live and where you work and where we go. You say, Eric, does Calvary have a president at Northern Kentucky University, that great institution, so influential in our area? Absolutely, it does. We have two faculty members sitting right there who will descend upon the campus this week. Does Calvary have a presence in the financial services community of Northern Kentucky? Absolutely it does. Does Calvary have a presence in the labor market in the Northern Kentucky area? Absolutely it does. Are we in the marketplace? Absolutely we are. Are we helping Amazon build the next bajillion square foot Asset for the community. Yes, we are. Are some of us laying hold of boxes to throw in the truck to get delivered? Yes, we are. Some of us are pilots. Some of us are real estate folk. Some of us are bankers. Some of us keep fidelity going. The coolest thing about Calvary is not this room. It's where you go from this room in this week. We are in all the right places. But the question is, are we who we need to be where we are? We won't have a future unless we are. I always loved the day of evangelism at Dallas Seminary. 1,700 students on campus at the time that I went there. And they would cut up East Dallas and all these blocks and streets. And we'd, we had this convocation in the morning. And then uh, that was back in the day where they, everybody had to wear a suit and a tie. You know, we'd take our suit and tie off and uh, descend upon the neighborhoods. It was really cool as we went out. It's like an army marching out, you know. It's, it's cool. Now I realize that that's, you know, 40 years ago, and um, you, know, you didn't get shot when you went cold calling. You know, you can, uh, no kidding, get, get shot today. You got to be careful. The navigators call it insiders. They said all of us are insiders someplace. On the streets where we live, on the teams our kids play on, the schools where we go, where we exercise. We're insiders. And insiders have much more leverage. Eric, will you talk to my workmate? Dude, why don't you talk to your workmate? Because you have more leverage than I do. You are more credible. No, you don't understand how I've lived in front of them. I want you to talk to them. Because if we are inauthentic around them, we have no insider status. That leads us to the insert before we leave this morning. Pull it out, please. It's entitled, Whom? It's Whom to the Fifth. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I have five whom questions to ask you. 
Whom am I praying for to begin a relationship with Jesus? Whom will I serve this week out of love and in Jesus' name? Whom have I engaged in a gospel conversation in the last month? Whom have I included on my list of five friends that I am seeking to introduce to Jesus Christ? We continually evaluate what we're doing and we're trying to do it with excellence. Whom have I invited to anything at Calvary in the last year? Is it a clubhouse? Or a lighthouse? Are we going to scatter after we gather with the privilege of living out loud for him? Let's do it. And if we do it with fresh resolve, we'll have a future that will be different than if we want to continue to have the clubhouse huddle and hope that pretty soon Jesus returns. Pretty soon he's going to return, and that's all the more reason to be a lighthouse for him. Stand with me. We're going to be sent out and leave right now. This is the on your marks. Get set. Go. Lord, who are we before you really? Help us understand the glory of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Help us understand that you go before us and give us a hearing. Help us by your grace and in spite of our sin to live lives of continuing conformity to Jesus so that we are authentic, so that our words of engagement matter because they've seen it incarnated in our life. Oh Lord, raise up the army here. We're going to scatter right now. We shall leave to have the privilege to represent the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, make us to be the people that you could look down and say, this is my beloved church in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye them. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.